All right, everybody. I love the the amount of chatter, though. It's great. Um, I, I love hearing that we are uh, spending the time to, to really probably get to know each other better, I imagine. Um, hopefully. Um, you're not just bad-mouthing me, which is possible. But um, no, uh, all jokes aside. Good morning, everyone. I am TJ. I know it's a little confusing. JT, TJ, we're both super tall, so it's easy to get us mixed up. Um, but I am a... A pastor in training or an elder in training here at Freshwater. Haven't gone through the ordination process yet, but part of what the in-training is, is I preach every once in a while. And so, um, as always, I say this every time, and I mean it every time, uh, it is a privilege and honor and a, truly a joy to be here doing this, uh, worshiping the Lord with you all. Um, so, if you will, you can open up your Bible to the book of Colossians, um, which, if you, like me, got a new Bible when we did the Philippians sermons, uh, it should be easy to find because my Bible's like stuck open to Philippians. So, um, and Colossians is just right after that. So you can turn to Colossians chapter 1, and I will read there here in a moment. Um, but like I said, as always, it's a joy, uh, privilege to worship the Lord with you all. Uh, this week marks the beginning of our Advent mini-series at Freshwater. We take the first couple of weeks before Christmas to do uh, focus on Advent, which uh, Advent is just a word that means arrival. And in the context of Christmas, it refers to the arrival of Jesus. Uh, of course, most of us here know that Jesus' Advent um, is the most important arrival of anything ever. And the importance of Jesus' Advent on the earth is summed up nicely in this title that we'll be focusing on over the next couple of weeks, which is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And next week, JT will walk through how Jesus' life and his ministry are a perfect representation of that. And the following week, Tony will preach on the second advent and how God with us has an impact on that when he returns on the last day. But, but today I'm going to be talking about the importance of this title, God with us, uh, as it pertains to the Old Testament and the history of God's people and his presence with them. So let's read Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this morning that we get to think about you, to dwell on you and your character, for you are good and worthy of considering, worthy of thinking about. God, we worship you, we love you, and we pray that your word would Bring us to love you more and more every moment. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, three things, a little bit of housekeeping before I really get into it. Uh, first thing we ought to think about is, I'm going to be talking about the presence of God a lot. Uh, of course, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But what I'm going to be focusing on is a little bit more about the immediate presence of God. So, as I'm mentioning it, uh, consider that and remember that. Uh, second 
Philippians, we just finished a series in Philippians, is very what I call prescriptive. That is to say, there are things that Paul said in Philippians that told us this is what you should do. And today is going to be a little bit different because this is really largely what I call descriptive. That is, I'm going to be describing the character of God and the way that impacts us. And then third, I'm going to be using a lot of scripture. (laughs) So I'm going to try to pause and and make sure we're all on literally the same page here. Uh, But we're going to be flipping through the Bible a lot. So um, actually speaking of, you can go ahead and turn to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2. We'll be starting there here in a minute. Um, But today, like I said, we're going to be talking about the importance of this title, Emmanuel. Because Jesus is the true and best Emmanuel, God with us. And when I say true and best, I I don't mean that there was anyone before who was also God embodied in the flesh. Jesus is the only human ever to also be God. But I'm referring to the presence of God as it pertains to humans. Because God's presence among humanity is kind of a confusing topic, and and that's why I wanted to take a look at it today. Because Jesus being the embodiment of God with us is great news already, but it only becomes more and more beautiful as we think about the negative impact that sin has had on our ability to be with God. To say another way, we appreciate the good news more when we think about how bad the bad news is and was. So my goal with this sermon is to walk us through the history of God's presence among his people so that we can have a greater appreciation of Jesus and his embodiment of Emmanuel. Uh, So probably not surprisingly, as I've already told you, we're going to start at the beginning, uh, or at least very close to it. So Uh, This is in Genesis chapter 2. God has just finished his work of creating the heavens, the earth, everything in it up until this point. Uh, He made Adam and gave him the world, like literally. Uh, But let's read Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That last line is, of course, very important, so remember it. But after giving that command, God made Eve, gave her to Adam, gave Adam to her, uh, gave both of them everything except except for that fruit from that one tree. And part of that everything includes the presence of God himself. He was with them, watching over them, giving them life, sustaining their life. But as you probably know, Adam and Eve didn't follow that command from God. Satan, in the form of a serpent, deceived Eve, and Adam neglected to lead his wife properly. They ate the fruit, and the narrative picks up there in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. So turn the page to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll pick up there. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they had heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They brought sin into the world, and through that sin, death came into the world as well. Remember God's warning to Adam as to what would happen if he ate from the tree? You shall surely die. 
But that didn't quite play out in the way one might have expected it to, right? Like, Adam didn't just take a bite and keel over. Like, there's, there's something else going on here. So what, so what does God mean? And there was certainly a spiritual death that occurred. Um, that there is now, for Adam and then the rest of humanity after that, uh, a desire to sin over a desire to be with God, right? And there's also the reality of, the reality, the very reality of death. There, there was another tree in the very same garden called the tree of life. And if, if they had eaten from that tree, which, which God did in fact give to them for, to eat from, uh, they would have lived forever. And that is kind of a, another sermon. But, but I, I do think there's an additional implication here. And this is the best way to sum up the main point for today, which is that Emmanuel, God with us, brings two things. It, it brings the purest, deepest, truest, most enjoyable sense of joy and, and love and peace and happiness forevermore. And also, it brings justice by the way of destruction of sin, along with anyone who participates in sin. And uh, for reference, that is all of us, uh, except, for, <laughs> except for one, but of course we'll We'll get there, small spoiler there, but um, you see, what was once an intimate relationship between God and humanity, in which God walked on the earth and dwelled with us, and we were fully satisfied in him and his presence with us, and how it gave us life, that has been torn to shreds by sin. Sin entering the world means that God was not walking with us in the garden, or anywhere else for that matter. And, and you may have heard before that, that the reason for this distance between God and humanity is shame. And some people's ideas that Adam's awareness of his nakedness and sin was what drove him to hide from God. And I, I certainly think those are legitimate factors, maybe even important factors, large factors. But unfortunately, I do think it's, it's, even, it's even worse than that. We get more details about this fracture between God and humanity in Exodus chapter 33. So uh, while you're turning to the next book, you're in Genesis right now, keep turning to the next book, that's Exodus, we'll be in chapter 33. Uh, while you are turning there, I'll give a brief synopsis, uh, a little bit of a summary of what happens between Genesis 3 and Exodus 33. Because even though God speaks to multiple people, and even speaks well of a few of them uh, over the course of this time, he doesn't show up on earth in the same way as he did in the garden. Uh, he's at least in some ways uh, communi communicating with humanity from, from a distance. He speaks to a man named Abraham and tells him that he will be the father of a great nation that will live in the land that God will give to them. And he fulfills that promise by the way of Abraham's son Isaac, who was then the father of Jacob, who would later be known as Israel. And Israel had many children and grandchildren and so on, but eventually the people of Israel were overtaken by Egypt, who enslaved them for generations. But God planned to liberate his people. He, he planned to do that by using a man named Moses to speak on the Lord's behalf to Pharaoh and bring about plagues until Pharaoh let Israel go. And the Lord brings 10 plagues against Egypt and sets Israel free from slavery and bondage. And then God uses Moses as a sort of liaison, a go-between between himself and Israel to communicate with them and to make a covenant with them 
Because God said he will be their God and they will be his people. And he will take them to this promised land that he promised Abraham. And then he gives guidelines on how exactly to follow him, to avoid sin and to make sacrifices to atone for those sins. Atone means to pay the price, but to make sacrifices of atonement for those sins that they do commit. And the chances now of of God dwelling with humanity again probably felt like they were pretty high uh, for his people at this time. Like, things are looking pretty good. And And it even looked like it was almost back to the way it was in the garden. God came to the top of a mountain multiple times. He talked to Moses uh, but not even like he did with Abraham. God, God came to the top of a mountain multiple times, and he spoke to Moses by appearing to him. With, with Abraham, he spoke without necessarily appearing there at all, um, or he spoke through angels. But, but with Moses, these meetings seem to be much closer and more intimate. But there are still some things to note about Moses' meetings with God. First of all, this sort of intimate closeness was really only seen with Moses. The rest of humanity at this time, including Israel, even the rest of Israel, weren't allowed to approach God in the same way that Moses was. And it might seem strange or needlessly cruel, but it's really, it's in fact quite the opposite of that. Because Israel, much like Adam and Eve, had sinned against God and defied his direct commands repeatedly, constantly, frequently. And, and this is what the Lord says That means for his presence with them. Again, this is Exodus 33. We're going to start in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And this passage here brings up a huge point in the Old Testament, and by extension, of course, the New Testament. This is why I think Adam hid. And I, I skipped over a part that comes earlier in Exodus, but the people of Israel tell Moses that they're, they're fine with Moses talking to them, but, but don't let God talk to us. And why? <laughs> like why, why would they feel that way? Well, when, when Moses is up on this mountain, the mountain starts smoking and there's lightning coming out of it and, and the thunder and, and everything's flashing and, and smoking and there's a sound of a trumpet. <laughs> um, so really what, what we need to know is, in, in fact, he actually says it in Exodus 20. It says, uh, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Lest, lest they die? or lest God consume them while he's going with them. It's, it seems like this separation from God that sin has brought is more than simply from shame and guilt. The truth is that the God's holiness is 
truly deadly to sin. And we talk about it often. People often say, of course, that sin separates us from God, and that's totally true. But, but I remember I used to think of it like, like God was trying to get to me, um, or, and, and my sin was like, you know, trying to push two magnets together the wrong way, and like I was repelling him from me. Or like, like God was trying to get to me, but I built a wall of sin, and, and now God can't get to me. But, um, but I, I don't think it's that way. Or, or really, or worse, I used to think that I, I, I was sinning, and, and God was trying to get to me, but then he saw me and was disgusted with me and didn't want to approach me anymore. But, but I don't think that's what's being shown to us here. It's not like that. God's distance from humanity was, in some very important ways, an act of mercy. And the, the Old Testament paints that picture. The fullness of the Father's presence is legitimately deadly to sin, and not only that, but every person who has sinned and is found in sin. Because one might look at what we just read and say that God is making a specific decision to destroy Israel or that his anger is really what's dangerous. But later in chapter 33 of Exodus, we see more fully the tragic truth. Moses, who was the one who was able to get the closest to God, was, was speaking to him about his presence. Uh, Moses said he wants to see the Lord in his fullness He's been speaking to God on Israel's behalf for a long time, uh, many times up to this point, um, and interceding for Israel to him. And Moses just wanted to see the God that he had been speaking to. And here's how that goes. This is Exodus 33, verses 18 through 20. Exodus 33, 18 through 20. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, that is God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the, my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Hey, great. Like, it's, it's finally happening. Uh, after thousands of years, God was going to walk with humanity again. Uh, sort of. Because the Lord continues in verse 20. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. And here's the bad news in its most blatant form. Man cannot fully see the Father and live. Humanity who knew the Lord and walked with him and could recognize where he was by the sound he makes when he's walking can no longer look at him without dying. That's tragic. And it keeps going. Because being in the immediate presence of God is lethal to humans because every human has sinned, but he, in his mercy, the Lord in his mercy, saw fit to guide his people to the promised land. And he, provi he provided a couple of means um, or methods for Israel to get as close to, to, as close to him uh, or as close to him being with them as is, uh, quote-unquote, safe. He gave Moses plans for the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, these two things were what God would dwell in so he could be near to Israel without completely annihilating them. And the Ark was a kind of box that they uh, would carry on rods for the sake of mobility. And the tabernacle was kind of like a movable building or, or a tent 
that was to be a meeting place between Moses and God, so Moses could talk to him without having to climb up onto a mountain every single time. Um, and if you're, if you're curious, God actually gives Moses the plans for those vessels in, in Exodus chapters 25 and 26, but the Israelites don't finish constructing them until literally the end of the book of Exodus in chapter 40. So, yeah, these, these things are complicated. They're really intricate. Um, so if you're, if you're interested in finer details, you can just go ahead and read Exodus chapters 25 through 40. Um, you know, a little bit of a, uh, of a jog there, but uh, fair warning, it's a lot of specific details about materials and lengths of boards and fabrics, but uh, more to the point this morning, uh, the way the ark and the tabernacle worked is that Israel was moving closer and closer to this promised land that God had promised to Abraham. And there, Israel would be protected by the Lord they would have rest and abundance, and, and God was taking them there. But if there wasn't a barrier of sorts between him and his unfaithful people, they would be consumed. They would be destroyed. They would be killed. So Israel carried the ark from spot to spot where they would set it up and put up the tabernacle and set that up around the ark and lead the ark in the center where Moses could go talk to God and figure out what they needed to do next. But as you may know or might have guessed, even with these safeguards, the presence of God was still neither fully accessible nor entirely safe for the people of Israel. So God, again, in his mercy, provided yet another means to prevent their deaths when he was near. God also instructed his people on how to set up sacrifices, how to offer sacrifices for atonement. Again, atonement meaning to pay the price. In this case, they were paying the price for sin, which, as we've established, is, of course, death. Sacrifices were, for this reason, obviously incredibly important. Uh, as we've seen a number of times today, God's presence destroys sin. God is perfect and perfectly holy, and perfectly just. But, thankfully, he is also perfectly merciful and perfectly gracious. God desires to dwell with his people. And these sacrifices were God's way of sparing the lives of his people while still being just and pouring his wrath out against the sin that his children committed. The death of the sacrifice was enough to cover the sins of Israel for a time, depending on the sacrifice, maybe up to a year. And with the death of the sacrifice, God was able to count their sins as paid for. Yes, sin was committed, but death occurred, and the ledger is balanced. And God chose a certain portion of the Israelites to be priests or representatives of Israel to God. And they would be responsible for making sacrifices and keeping Israel from being destroyed by the imminent presence of God as he was with them. And this man Moses had a brother named Aaron, and God declared that Aaron and his sons would be consecrated as priests to do this work. Consecrated means uh, ritually or, or spiritually cleansed and anointed and set apart. So they were established as the people who were going to do this job. And you don't need to turn here, uh, but, get, but again, in case you want to know 
Exodus chapters 29 and 30 contain a very detailed list of all the steps in this process of consecration. But where you should go ahead and turn to is Leviticus chapter 10. Because this consecration process is eventually performed in Leviticus 8, 9, and 10. Um, If you're in Exodus, you can just turn to the next book, which is Leviticus, and we'll be in chapter 10. But in Leviticus 8 and 9, Aaron and his sons are performing this, this rite of consecration. They're doing what the Lord commanded Moses. And in fact, that phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses, shows up. Um, at least 10 times um, in Leviticus 8 and 9, arguably more if you're uh, being generous with how exactly those words line up, but, um, <laughs> but more than 10 times. Um, and in Leviticus 8 and 9, they're performing this rite of consecration, and they're doing what the Lord commanded Moses. Aaron is successfully consecrated, and his sons are assisting and about to finish being consecrated as well until this happens at the beginning of Leviticus chapter 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. What we see in this passage is an example of exactly how large the gap is between humanity and God's holiness. God's presence is so beautiful and life-giving and satisfying unless you're under the effects of sin. And, and humanity has a tendency to forget what sin can be. And we, we like to think of it as, well, it's bad deeds and hurting people or doing things God told us not to do, which, of course, it is those things. Like, those things are sin. But it can also come in a different form. Sin sometimes looks like a person doing what they think is right, but they didn't pay attention to God's decrees or they didn't hold him as holy and righteous Now, in this example, we don't know if this was deliberate defiance or laziness or even forgetfulness, but we do know that Aaron's sons did something that was different from what the Lord commanded Moses. Don't worry, we'll be getting to the happier part soon, I promise. Um, And my goal isn't to discourage anyone here. Merry Christmas, by the way. But I am bringing this up because I, I want us to see a couple of really important things. Firstly, these three verses are what come to my mind when I hear someone say, I think I'll probably you know, go to heaven because I know I'm not perfect, but I'm really nice to people and I try to help people who need it. And if I can help them, I do that. Um, so I think I'm probably good. Look at, look at what just happened. <laughs> look at what just happened. These men were actively in a ceremony of consecration as a rite of sacrifice to God. They successfully followed at least 10 portions of what the Lord commanded Moses. But they used the wrong fire. I promise you've done something at least that sinful. I promise. I, I, I'm so certain of it. I know, I know I have. Of course, we all have. 
If using, but if using the wrong fire is enough to bring about the wrath of God, so is, so is anything that you've ever done that isn't some completely selfless and righteous act of worshiping the Lord. But secondly, the, the very best sacrifices that humanity could come up with were enough to pay this price for sin, to atone, but for some sin, and for some time, and for some people in some country. <laughs> what hope did humanity ever have of seeing a reality in which God is dwelling with us for any length of time without us having to be so afraid and so concerned about making a mistake? And, and I do want to be clear here. At this point, the goal is still to be dwelling with God. At least it was for those who know how good, beautiful, life-giving, righteous, and satisfying his presence is. And I'm saying this to remind us because at this point, after reading everything we've read, uh, you, you, you wouldn't be crazy to be thinking, well, do I really want to be with this God? But what we see is that Moses and his successor Joshua and the prophets and many of the kings of Israel throughout the Old Testament know how good he is. I'm going to rapid fire some things that the followers of God had said. If you want these references, uh, I got a sheet and you can, you can have it uh, afterward. But, um, so Moses says, the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God and I will exalt him. And Joshua at the end of his life said, now I'm about to go the way of the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed all of the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. King David famously believed that goodness and mercy will follow him all the days of his life and he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And his son, King Solomon, loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. The prophet Isaiah says this of God, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And even the, the collective whole of the tribe of Judah united in prayer and worship to God, singing, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Those who even got a glimpse of God's faithfulness, his kindness, his mercy, his love, knew that, knew that he was worth following. Yes, they feared him. Yes, they honored him. But they also loved him. And he loved them. The world wants to say that, that God is temperamental, or the God of the Old Testament was mean, or God's standards were way too high. But the truth is, everyone who knows him knows he is good and worthy of love and worship. They, they find their joy in him, in his presence. They, they knew what the rest of the world desperately wants to deny. God, God has never been the problem in his relationship with humanity. It, it has only ever been with us. God's not irrational and angry. He's holy, and humanity is unfaithful. God is not impatient. He's righteous, and humanity is sinful. God is not demanding He's perfect, and we're not. God's not unfair. Humanity has handed itself over to sin, and sin, when it's anywhere close to the fullness of God, is destroyed. 
I think, I think we've, we got the, the bad news part down. Um, but I'm hoping we get to use that as, as a comparison and see the good news of the gospel and appreciate it more and more and more every moment. The gospel, or the good news, is, of course, Jesus. So let's turn back to the passage we read at the beginning here, back to Colossians chapter 1. This is verses 15 through 20. That's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So obviously it's going to take a bit of time to turn there. <laughs> but, but here's why this was the repeating passage today. When we think of Emmanuel, the idea that Jesus' birth was the advent or the arrival of God with us, there's, there's a tendency for people to think of Jesus as someone who's like God or, or a version of God that's somehow not fully God, but God begs to differ And he says this about himself through the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Colossian church in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." So there's a lot to unpack with with those verses in in the context of what we've been talking about today. When we think about Christmas and Advent and and the idea of of a human baby being Emmanuel, that is, God with us, when we we think about that, we we tend to look at it um, through a lens of of a 21st century American uh, because we are... 21st century Americans. And there's no shame in that, of course. <laughs> but, but in light of what we've read today, this, this figure that Paul was describing in Colossians is nearly impossibly good. I mean, think about it. The, the image of the invisible God. When Moses asks God if he, could just, if he could just see the Lord in all his glory, what was his response? Man shall not see my face and live. But Jesus is the otherwise invisible God. To see see Jesus' face is to see the face of God. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Anyone who got to be with Jesus got to be with the fullness of God. Anyone who touched Jesus was touching as much of God as anyone who was touching the Ark of the Covenant. Mary held him in her body. How, how, can, how can this be? This is the fullness of God. This is the thing that, that kills you, 
that, that consumes you, that ends your life. If somebody, if somebody accidentally got this close to the tabernacle, they were, it was over. And the answer is this. Jesus perfectly embodies the fullness of God, yes, but, but he also in, embodies every element of protection that God has been using up until this point to keep his people safe from his wrath against sin. God being a man in Jesus Christ was in fact, is in fact, the true, perfect, ideal way to accomplish this grand reunion between God and men. Of course, Jesus is a representation of that in and of himself, but, but it's, more, it's more beautiful than just that. It, in Jesus is the fullness of God, but Jesus is also the better version of the Ark of the Covenant, the, a better version of the tabernacle, a, a better version of sacrifice. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It, it had to be Jesus in his exact nature, with exactly the words he said, and exactly the time he was born, and exactly the place he was born, with all the things he did, and how he looked, how he sounded, it, it had to be exactly him. Right? Because this is a God whose wrath was brought about by using the wrong fire to give a sacrifice, because he's that righteous. If, if only there was a perfect human who did all the things right, but how could anyone ever hope to do that? They would have to be that God. In order for a human to do all the right things all the time, they would, they would have to be God. And, and these, these vessels or these vehicles that God was using to bring his presence to his people, remember, they, they were blessings. They, they were mercies from God. God wanted to be with his people. And, and he was, but, but there was always a distance between him and them. And, this, and it wasn't because God was, was mad at everyone. It's not because he needed some space, needed to cool off. His distance between himself and us was because sin had corrupted us. And, and this corruption meant that, that God's very presence was lethal to us. But this idea of a, of a container that God could dwell in was, was meant to allow us to be near him without being exposed to the fullness of him. But, but the crazy thing is, Jesus is the fullness of God. So, so how can he possibly be anywhere near another human without them dying? And, and here's, here's the other beautiful key. Not only is he God, the fullness of God, and the perfect human, he's also the perfect sacrifice. In Moses' day, they would offer a sacrifice that was as close to perfect as they could get, as they could come up with. It would cover some sins for, for a few people for a short time. But again, Jesus, in Jesus is the fullness of God. Imagine this. What's, what's the only sacrifice that is holy, perfect, righteous, satisfying, and lovely enough to cover all sins for all God's people for all of time and beyond. Once again, that sacrifice would have to be God himself. So as we go...
go into the Christmas season. Let's remember that Emmanuel, God with us, is more than just a cute wallpaper nativity scene. It, it can be that, and in some ways there, there is that, but, but it's, it's also more. This, this is the, the holy, righteous, infinite, awe-inspiring, fear-worthy, sovereign creator God in human form. And this baby, Jesus, was born to become the only perfect sacrifice because, because only God could ever be the perfect sacrifice. And the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was, was not plan B. This, this cross was not the second plan. This wasn't the contingency. The cross was the intention from the beginning. God knew he wanted to be with us, and he knew we wouldn't be able to handle that. So, so he gives a foreshadowing of himself in the form of the ark and the tabernacle. And through these things, he could draw very near to us, but, but not fully near. And even without being fully near, we had to offer spotless sacrifices to get even that close to God. And even then, it was dangerous. But God, in his eternal kindness and love for his children, had a plan to provide a way we could be with him. But he had to be the vessel. He had to be the sacrifice. He had to be the righteousness. We couldn't come up with it. Only God could be the perfect embodiment of all of these things. And he takes it one step further. God embodies all of these good things, and he dies in our place, but he doesn't stop there. He proceeds to bring himself back from the dead. He's Lord over life and death. He can't be contained by the mere inconvenience of dying. Honestly, let's, it's not even an inconvenience. He's Lord over all of it. And, and in coming back from the dead, he killed death. And will. It's an already not yet, right? But the one thing that was keeping us from being with God, which is death, is it's over. <laughs> it's finished. He's, he's conquered. He's won. And if you believe that, that Jesus is Lord, that he's God with us, that you're sinful and incapable of even coming close to approaching God, and you believe that God raised himself from the dead to conquer death forever, you will be saved. And you can join with the rest of the saints today as we celebrate Emmanuel, who is God with us, and you can join with us forever as we worship the Lord in eternity for the good God that he is. And Christian, we need to know, we need to know first that, that God with us is, is potentially a very, very scary thing because, because then we can be all the more glad that we don't have to be scared. We get to see God. We get to be with him without being consumed. And at Christmas, we, we celebrate the advent of Jesus, who is Emmanuel, because we get to experience all of the goodness of God while he takes on the bad. Let's let that be our celebration this year. Let us be glad and incredibly grateful that by his sacrifice, we get to be, we get to dwell with him 
And he is Emmanuel, God with us forever.